Hey everybody, this is Sarah Craiger. I'm an emergency physician and intensivist at UCLA, and this is the ICU-EDU podcast. So I had taken a little hiatus um, for a while because one, life happens, and two, I got a little sidetracked with some other medical education projects. But we're back, and today talking about vasoplegia. So I was thinking about this because last night, um, a good friend of mine who's an amazing ER doctor called me and was like, hey, can I just run this patient by you? This woman, and um, she's super sick, you know, she's septic, she has COVID, and I think she's maybe profoundly vasoplegic. I mean, I have her maxed out on multiple pressors, still profoundly hypotensive. I'm looking at her bedside echo, and the LV is really hyperdynamic, underfilled. I'm giving her volume, but I'm just not getting anywhere. Can I run this by you? True vasoplegia can be striking, profound, and also just profoundly frustrating because you're like, I'm doing all the things. What else do you want from me? The first thing that you should keep in mind, though, is that unless you have a swan in and you can say, well, my SVR is 500 on three pressors, I guess vasoplegia it is, vasoplegia is also a diagnosis of exclusion. And it's important in particular to keep that in mind because the patient where vasoplegia usually occurs are almost always the super sick patients who can have a lot of other things that are either the primary cause of their hypotension or a significant contributing cause. And you don't want to be chasing after vasoplegia while you're failing to notice that your patient is having a pretty significant occult GI bleed or an evolving tension pneumothorax. Um, And furthermore, because these patients are so sick, you also really need to be attentive to what I like to call Murphy's Law of Critical Care. The more things that have gone wrong, the more things that will go wrong. And so just because you've correctly identified that maybe they genuinely are vasoplegic, don't stop looking and being vigilant for the development of all of the other things that can go wrong in sick patients that can contribute to hypotension. So before getting into the details of addressing vasoplegia, let's talk through the physiologic possibilities that can be producing the sort of overall clinical and echocardiographic picture that you'll often encounter with these patients. So usually you're going to see something like this. The patient is profoundly hypotensive. They're on multiple pressors. They're unresponsive to fluids or minimally responsive to fluids, but you're seeing this hyperdynamic and underfilled left ventricle on echocardiogram. Now, there are two other things that can appear somewhat similar to this picture on first pass, and you need to parse out here because even though they can sort of appear similar on first pass, they require a completely different treatment approach. The first one is RV failure. So these patients often not fluid responsive, often on multiple pressors, and their left ventricle is going to look hyperdynamic and underfilled. Why? Because the right ventricle is not giving it anything to work with. The person ahead of you in the assembly line is not doing their job is what's happening there. Now on echo, yes, the LV looks hyperdynamic and underfilled, but you will probably also see maybe a big RV, maybe just a thickened RV. You may just see some septal flattening, a dilated IVC, but start looking for those things. Sometimes they're more subtle than you think, because if that's your problem, treat them for the RV failure. Second, acute or subacute valvular catastrophes. So specifically, acute aortic regurgitation or acute mitral regurgitation. Because you're going to see something similar, right? You're going to see profound hypotension, not responsive to pressors, really not responsive to fluids, and the LV looks super hyperdynamic and underfilled. Why? 
Well, it's because when the LV squeezes, um, it's going to squeeze great, except all of that lovely blood it's trying to squeeze, instead of squeezing forward, it's going to pop off and actually go the wrong direction. Because what is happening with aortic regurge or mitral regurge is that what is supposed to be one-way valve system has turned into a two-way valve system. And so the LV can often look very hyperdynamic, but it's because everything's going backwards through the pop-off valve. If that is the case, you're often going to see a really, really big left atrium and a dilated IVC. And it's important to think about this because unless you always put color Doppler on your patients, it's not that hard to miss. And it's going to look similar. And it's a totally different treatment approach. Okay, but what about if this is true vasoplegia? Why does vasoplegia look like this? Because that's what you're going to see also with vasoplegia. I mean, the thing that mainly people remark on is the left ventricle looks like it's begging you for volume. And that's why this is frustrating because you're like, you want volume? I want to give you volume. I'm trying to give you volume. What's the deal? Why does the left ventricle look so hyperdynamic when somebody's vasoplegic? It's because it's not pushing against any afterload. Even a really bad left ventricle can look really impressive if it doesn't have to push anything, you know? It's like when you see a big, heavy-looking box, and uh, you're like, oh, that box must weigh a ton, and you go to move it, and you push really hard, and then you're surprised because it moves so much, right? Like you accidentally push it way too far because it's a lot lighter than you thought it was going to be. That's the idea when you have vasoplegia. The left ventricle is pushing against basically zero afterload. I mean, very minimal afterload. So it looks really hyperdynamic. It also looks underfilled. Why? Because it is. But why is it underfilled? You're like pouring volume into this patient. It's not working. It's not working. Okay, here's the way to think about this. Let's pretend you have a puppy. I don't actually have a puppy. Would love to have a puppy, but let's just say I have one. And I just took my puppy for a walk, and my puppy's really thirsty. So I want to fill his water bowl. And on a normal day, you know, he has a normal puppy-sized water bowl. So I throw some water in there. The puppy drinks water. Everybody's happy. What if on Tuesday, the water bowl gets expanded to the size of a swimming pool? So I'm like at my sink, like desperately pouring water into this now swimming bowl-sized water bowl. The puppy's on the other side being like, I would really like some water, but... No matter how fast I pour the water in there, it is going to take so much water to fill that swimming pool before he can actually get to any of it to drink it. Yeah, that is functionally what's happening. When somebody is vasoplegic, what is happening is that they have a huge volume sink. You are pouring water into a huge swimming pool, but it's so big that you can't get any of it to where it actually needs to go. That is really what's going on here. And so what you actually need to do, functionally speaking, physiologically speaking, is to tighten up the vascular. You need to shrink your swimming pool back down to the size of a water bowl, and giving more volume is actually not going to accomplish that. Because physiologically, the analogy um, is really for what we call stressed and unstressed volume. That you now have all of this volume sitting there, but since it's not pressurized volume, it's not doing you any good. Because pressurized volume is the only volume that counts in the circulatory system. Non-pressurized volume will literally get you nowhere. So what you need to do is not so much give more volume. You probably eventually will need to give some more volume, but until you can repressurize the system... Giving the volume won't get you anywhere, which is why often it feels like these patients aren't volume responsive 
because it's just kind of underwhelming what happens when you give them volume. So how are we going to do that? Well, there are really sort of six things that I think about when I'm trying to pressurize the system and treat vasoplegia. The first is one, diversify my vasopressor mechanisms of action. The second one is think about steroids. The third is correct any acidemia. Fourth is address my calcium. Fifth is correct bradycardia. And sixth is a couple of rescue therapies. Okay, vasopressor mechanism. One, diversify, right? So sometimes maybe your patient just isn't responsive to a particular mechanism of action. Um, you know, for example, I had a patient the other day who was profoundly vasoplegic, um, and they were on a bunch of meth, and they were chronic meth users. And I was like, maybe their adrenergics are just burned out. And so in that patient, I started some early vasopressin. Um, and so sometimes just having a presser that uses a different mechanism. So if you're already on, you know, norepi and phenylephrine and epi, start some vasopressin. If you're already on vasopressin, start some angiotensin, diversify your mechanism. Now, in particular, if your patient is on an ACE inhibitor or an ARB at home, I'll often start vasopressin pretty early, particularly in those patients. Two, do you need some steroids? So if your patient is vasoplegic secondary to adrenal insufficiency, they will not get better no matter what you do unless and until you give them stress dose steroids. So like hydrocortisone, you know, you can give them 100 or 125 to start and then 50Q6, off you go. Um, now, primary adrenal insufficiency is actually quite rare, but there's a lot of patients that I have a low threshold to give steroids to. One is obviously chronic steroid use, right? Anybody with chronic sort of autoimmune issues, they're on steroids. Even sometimes patients who are like COPD and getting courses of steroids every five minutes, that's one of them. Um, Another thing, though, that we don't think about a lot is it turns out that chronic high-dose opioid use can actually cause some level of secondary adrenal insufficiency. Another one is there is a not terribly frequent but real level of adrenal insufficiency in patients with a history of TBI. I also will think about it lower threshold in patients who are just chronically ill, frail, who I think may just be having trouble mounting an appropriate physiologic stress response. And then finally, if I have a patient who's also just bizarrely hypoglycemic, like they don't really have a great reason to be hypoglycemic, and I'm fighting their blood pressure and their sugar, I'll often have a lower threshold to give stress dose steroids in those patients as well. I think increasingly, with us having a lower threshold to use steroids in patients with septic shock in general, a lot of us are just giving steroids in these patients. But if I have a patient who I truly think is vasoplegic, I'll often do this relatively early on unless I have a really good contraindication not to. Next, correcting acidemia. So it is very difficult for your vessels to vasodilate if there is a profound acidemia. If your pH is really low, that is not helping anything. So the first thing I do is I try and help this patient's minute ventilation. Often these patients, they're just really sick. So often they're intubated. And so I will max out my minute ventilation. You know, I'll put them on a really high rate. I'll try and give them a really robust tidal volume to blow down their CO2 to try and get their pH as close to normal as I can. Because often these PA patients are, in fact, acidemic. They often have a really bad metabolic acidosis. Because whatever thing that's causing them to be so sick, whatever's causing causing them to be in shock, whatever's causing and contributing to their vasoplegia in the first place, often can also cause an acidosis. 
So one other thing I will do in these patients, in addition to just sort of what is the underlying cause of the shock and so forth, and I need to fix it so I can fix the acidosis primarily, but sometimes I will also, in these patients, use bicarb to break a vicious cycle. Because to be clear, if I have a patient who has a profound, I don't know, lactic acidosis, the bicarb will not fix my problem. Bicarb does not fix a lactic acidosis. What fixes a lactic acidosis is figuring out the underlying cause and fixing that. However, let's say I'm in profound shock. And because I'm in profound shock, I'm vasoplegic. Because I'm in vasoplegia, I am not really responding to my vasopressors. That's making me more acidemic. The acidemia is causing the vasoplegia to become worse. That's causing the shock to become worse. That's causing the acidemia to get worse. And off we go. We are now in a vicious cycle. So sometimes I will give an amper to a bicarb to help break the vicious cycle, where I'm saying, okay, I need to transiently correct my pH, not because I think that that's fixing my underlying problem, but because in order to get out of this vicious cycle of vasoplegia, acidemia, unresponsiveness, depressors, vasoplegia, acidemia, unresponsiveness, I need to transiently bump up my pH. So sometimes I will do that, although keeping in mind, if I'm going to do that, I need to know that my patient can blow off that CO2 either because they can handle it if they're spontaneously breathing or because I've first maxed out my minute ventilation on my vent. Three, calcium. If your patient is hypocalcemic, they will not get better until you fix their calcium, right? Calcium is a critically important piece of the pathway for vasoconstriction. You need it. So keep in mind that it's your eye calcium that matters, right? It's your ionized calcium. And so just because you have a calcium, it depends what your albumin is. And so I have a relatively thorough threshold to give calcium to these patients. Um, if I don't have an ionized calcium, if I do have an ionized calcium um, that looks okay, there are still some patients where I will give them additional calcium, even if their ionized calcium looks okay. One in calcium channel blocker patients. Any patient who's on a calcium channel blocker at baseline, I have a low threshold to give them a little added calcium to help them out. Two, in a patient who I am massively transfusing. You know, often massive transfusion itself can cause patients to become vasoplegic. It's a really pro-inflammatory state. So if I'm massively transfusing somebody, I'm giving them all that citrate, then yes, I will often give them some added calcium even if their iCal is normal. And lastly, in the ICU patients on CRRT. I'll often give them a little added calcium. Um, calcium is another one of the things, though, that sometimes you just need it to help you break a vicious cycle of vasoplegia and start on a positive cycle. So I also have a relatively low threshold, if I truly think somebody's vasoplegic, to push an amp or two of calcium. Next, bradycardia. So patients who have a combination of vasoplegia with any degree of inappropriate bradycardia or just even inability to mount a compensatory tachycardic response can be particularly problematic. It's like an adding insult to injury situation where it just completely kills their ability to compensate. Because what does your body do when, you know, you vasodilate? You get tachycardic, right? That is your appropriate compensatory response. So in a patient who usually it's because they're on a beta blocker, they're inappropriately bradycardic. Um, those are the patients where I have a low threshold to start them as on epi sometimes, as my second line vasopressor to try and get that heart rate up. And even I've had certain situations when I've even started them on a little bit of dopamine. And I almost never use dopamine. But if I really think that inappropriate bradycardia is just 
dramatically magnifying the effects of my baseline vasoplegia, sometimes I will do that. And so correcting your bradycardia by giving a little chronotrope can sometimes be very helpful. Finally, your rescue therapies. So I've done all these things. I'm getting myself nowhere. It's just not working. I'm adding my fourth presser. This is bad. What are your rescue therapies? And your rescue therapies are basically these two things that act very, very downstream. You're cutting out all the middlemen, and they are methylene blue or cyanocyte hydroxycobalamin. So methylene blue is the one that's easier to get a hold of. You're going to dose it as one to two mg per kg as a bolus. And then if you need to, you can also think about adding on a drip at like 0.5 to 1 mg per kg per hour. And it can be very effective, actually. The major contraindication um, that you are going to think about with these guys is if they are on an SSRI, SNRI, or MAOI, they can develop a profound serotonin syndrome. So that's like a hard stop contraindication. Use it with care in patients with renal or hepatic impairment. They can develop methemoglobinemia, but you can still use it. Just come down a little bit on the dose. It's totally fine to use, um, but I would go down to like a one mg per kg single dose and not put them on a drip. And then pregnancy is also probably a contraindication to this. All right. Um, last sort of use with care is keep in mind, if you have a patient who has right ventricular failure, pulmonary hypertension, just like methylene blue is going to significantly vasoconstrict your peripheral circulation, it's also going to significantly vasoconstrict in your pulmonary circulation. And so just be a little bit thoughtful about that. Um, if you have a patient with pulmonary hypertension, that that could cause them some problems. Now, cyanocyte is actually super useful as well. And the main time that I give cyanocyte as first line is if I have somebody who is on an SSRI or MAOI um, or SNRI, because it's okay to use on those guys. Um, you don't need a dose adjustment in renal hepatic dysfunction. It's not studied in pregnancy, and I don't know the answer in pregnancy. I feel like if you have a pregnant patient who's that profoundly vasoplegic, uh, that sounds terrifying to me. <laughs> and um, I, I don't know the answer with cyanocyte, because as far as I know, it's not been studied. But um, again, it's fine to use in patients on SSRIs, MAOIs, and okay in renal and hepatic dysfunction. Same caveat in patients with pulmonary hypertension and RV failure that it can increase your PA pressures. Um, Dose-wise, you can usually just order it from pharmacy as cyanocyte. Um, they're going to give you a harder time because it's more expensive, I think, and harder to get a hold of than methylene blue. So usually I only use it if I have a contraindication to methylene blue, or sometimes I use it um, if methylene blue doesn't work. You know, it just so happened last night, I also had a patient uh, simultaneously who on the CTICU was profoundly, profoundly vasoplegic. I mean, he literally, you know, did have like an SVR in the 600s on three pressors. Um, and I tried methylene blue and it just didn't work. And so then I gave cyanocyte and that actually worked. So sometimes I've had better luck with cyanocyte. Your dose is going to be five to 10 grams as an IV piggyback. And then if you really need to, you could start a drip at 250 to 500 milligrams an hour. Um, but often I'll just give an initial bolus and sometimes that'll just get me over the hump, help me break my vicious cycle and get my patient's vasoplegia better enough that they'll start being volume responsive and I can start maybe backing off some of my other vasopressors. So those are your two rescue therapies, methylene blue and cyanocyte. So that's how I approach vasoplegia. In those patients where they're profoundly hypotensive, you're on multiple pressors, your LV is hyperdynamic and underfilled, and you just feel like you can't get anywhere, 
What are you going to do? What you need to do is repressurize the system. Pouring volume into a system that's not under pressure is not going to do you any good. In order to repressurize the system, I sort of think about six different things that I can do. I can switch up my vasopressor mechanisms, add on new mechanisms. I have a low threshold to start steroids. I'm going to be really vigilant about correcting my acidemia. I'm going to be pretty aggressive with correcting any possible hint of hypocalcemia. I'm going to help correct bradycardia if I have a patient who's inappropriately bradycardic. And then if all else fails, I'm going to think about rescue therapies with methylene blue and or cyanocate. Thanks for listening.